Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 505 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre and your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how to succeed as an author or writer. So what have you been up to this week? On the weekend, I went to the opening night of The Mousetrap at the Theatre Royal in Sydney, the newly renovated Theatre Royal in Sydney. It's a classic whodunit by Agatha Christie. Some of you may be familiar uh, with it. And I remember seeing it a billion years ago um, on the West End in London. And even back then, it was the world's longest running play. It opened or back in 1952 and it ran continuously until March 2020 when the only thing stopping it was COVID. It then reopened in May 2021 because things started opening up again in the UK. Now, I thought it was great fun. I love a whodunit because... Quite frankly, I can never guess who done it. So it's always very satisfying for me at the end. And of course, being opening night, it was fun to star spot or try to star spot. I did manage to see Melissa Doyle, Trevor Ashley, Sammy Lucas, who has been on this podcast, actually, um, the guy who's in, you know, that show and that other guy who's in that other show and a bunch of vaguely recognisable celebs. But, you know, actually, I was too busy being excited that I was out and about and enjoying the theatre to pay too much attention to the red carpet. I absolutely love the theatre, so The Mousetrap is touring to Brisbane, Adelaide and Melbourne in the coming months, so hopefully you'll have a chance to see it too. This week's writing tip, though, comes from the fabulous Focus on Openings seminar that we held a few weeks ago, and in it, Pamela Freeman gave some really concise, really actionable tips on how to make the opening of your story the best it can be. And the point is to make it so great so that publishers and editors and agents absolutely want to read on. Now, in case you missed that seminar, I'll share one of Pamela's top tips for writing a great opening. And that is, do not start with your character sitting still. Yeah, sitting still. Have you opened with your character just sitting there, thinking about their past? No, Get them up, moving, doing something. Readers don't generally want to read two pages of your character thinking. They want to know what the story is about. They want to know what's going to happen. So have you fallen into the trap of starting with your character doing nothing but thinking? Well, maybe take another look at your manuscript and see what your character can do to get the story started. Our Focus On series is a great way for anyone who wants to get a laser focus on a specific skill. One of the participants, Andrea Sherko, said about the latest Focus On seminar, The session completely changed what I thought I knew about starting a story. I feel much better equipped to do them properly now. Pamela's style of presentation is very engaging and interesting. Thank you, Andrea. I think so too. Now, to find out more about our Focus on series, just go to writercenter.com.au slash focus. The next one is focus on the second act, how to avoid the saggy middle and write a page turning story. Because it's often in your second act where things start 
getting a little bit clunky, getting a little bit slow, getting a little bit murky. I'm I'm so grateful that, for example, The Mousetrap, the play that I just saw, obviously has got the right ingredients because there was no saggy middle. But you know what I mean. Sometimes you see plays or read books and the middle, you kind of have to wade through it a bit. If it's a play, I tend to fall asleep. (laughs) So you don't want to write a saggy middle. You want to keep the pace going generally. So this focus on the second act is how to avoid the saggy middle and write a page turning story. This is a 90 minute seminar on Zoom and it's on Wednesday, 19th October, 2002. But check out all of our Focus On series uh, at writercentre.com.au slash focus. Now let's move on to our competition this week. I am so excited for Anna Spargo-Ryan, who has written this memoir, A Kind of Magic. Anna has done many courses at the Australian Writers' Centre and she has carved out a fantastic career as and reputation as a beautiful writer, not only in the freelance writing space, but also with her books. This memoir, A Kind of Magic, has been described as powerfully honest, tender and often funny, a kind of magic blends meticulous research with vivid snapshots of the stuff that breaks us and the magic of finding ourselves again. Anna's always had too many feelings, or not enough feelings, she's never been quite sure. Debilitating panic, extraordinary melancholy, paranoia, ambivalence, fear, despair. From anxious child to terrified parent, mental illness has been a constant. A harsh critic in the big moments, teenage pregnancy, divorce, a dream career, falling in love, and a companion in the small ones, getting to the supermarket, feeding all her cats, remembering which child is which. But between therapists' rooms and emergency departments, there's been a feeling even harder to explain. Optimism. For your chance to win one of three copies, go to writercentre.com.au slash win. Entries close on 17th October. And if you add that URL in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other fantastic book for you to win. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? This week's word of the week is short and sweet. It's otalgia. O-T-A-L-G-I-A, otalgia. It's simply another word for earache. So, you know, if you need to call in sick and you want to make it sound more serious than it is, you can say that you have otalgia. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Do you want to write for children? Would you like to create characters and stories that kids will love? Our course in writing children's novels is the perfect way to start your journey towards becoming a children's author. This course focuses on writing for middle grade, that's 8 to 13 year olds. You'll discover how to find your voice, understand the market, take your characters and your readers on epic adventures and create a blueprint for succeeding as a writer. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning online with your very own tutor providing direct feedback on your writing. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash children. That's writerscentre.com.au slash children. Now let's move on to our writer in residence this week and stay tuned afterwards for some more fun facts about the world of writing. 
Reese Carter's debut novel has made a splash around the world. A Girl Called Corpse has been sold in multiple territories and has been praised by some of the biggest names in the publishing industry. While Reese started a career as a nutritionist at first, he always wanted to write children's novels and now he writes full time thanks to an international bidding war that resulted in a three book deal. Thanks so much for joining us today, Reese. Valerie, thank you for having me. I feel like, I mean, this is the first time we've spoken, but I feel like I'm chatting to an old friend because your voice is so familiar from Australian Writers' Centre. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've done several of our courses, but the result has been this incredible book. You have such a fresh voice. It is such a great story. I loved it so much. And I want people to know that even whether if they're an adult, um, they should read this book because I think what you've created is truly something special. Oh, thank so, you. Thank you. Congratulations. So the book I'm talking about, which is your debut novel, A Girl Called Corpse, can you please tell everyone gonna... what it's about? Right. Yeah, yes. I sure can. I sure can. So A Girl Called Corpse is, as the title suggests, a spooky fantasy. So it's a spooky middle grade fantasy. And it's about a kid ghost who really does not want to be a ghost. So what she wants is her memories back of her life. She wants to know what her real name was. She wants to know who her family was. Um, And so when we meet her at the start of the book, she actually doesn't look like what you might imagine a ghost to look like. She's got a body made of wax, seaweed for hair, polished abalone shells for eyes. And when she learns that there is a treasure which can reunite her with all of those lost memories, she sets off to find it, accompanied, of course, by her loyal sidekick, a very brave and very chatty huntsman spider by the name of Simon. I love Simon and we're going to talk more about Simon later. But first of all, how in the world did you come up with this idea? It's so unique. It was, this is very much a case of character first. I was, I was living in, I wasn't living where I am now. I was in an older house and it kind of, you know, creaked and groaned. It felt like maybe there might be a ghost there somewhere anyway. And I was trying to get to sleep one night and my eyes had adjusted to the darkness. And then I looked up and the manhole in the ceiling was slightly ajar for no reason. I hadn't gone up there. My housemate hadn't gone up there. Still to this day, cannot explain why it might have been open. So, of course, I completely flipped out and got scared when I was brave enough to kind of jiggle it shut with a broom and hid under my blanket again. I started to think who or what might be up there. And I came up reasonably quickly with this idea of this character corpse and I saw her reasonably fully complete there and then. Um, There were a few changes that were made, um, but what I definitely knew right from the beginning was that she was very lonely and that she was kind of mourning mourning her family and mourning this sense of belonging and having somewhere to belong, mourning her name, but also that she was mourning something on this side of her death as well, that she'd recently lost a friend um, who is another character that we meet a little bit later. I won't give too much away. But this sense of what she wanted and who she was was really, really strong, and that dictated the plot really. So it was knowing her as a character I was like, and what she wanted. I was like, well, now I have to write the story where she does or does not find that. Now, what age group would you say this is for? So this is for eight to 12-year-olds. I think in terms of the writing level, it's pretty firmly in that middle middle grade area. Um, Some of the, you know, some of the characters are a little bit spooky. There's some um, darker, more chilling moments in there. So I think it'll depend on what, you know, what each individual kid is comfortable with, but eight to 12-year-olds. Yeah. Oh, it's a fantastically written story. How did you create this world? Because it is... 
um, it's a fantastical world uh, with unusual characters who are not your normal humans. Um, How in the world does this enter your head? Because it's so um, believable. So it was, thank you, firstly, that's very kind of you to say. Um, firstly, the sort of the landscape itself was based very much on the southwest of Australia. So I'm from WA and we used to holiday um, as a family when I was a child, two weeks every summer. And, you know, when you're a kid, those summer holidays, two weeks feels like a lifetime. They stretch out, they're huge adventures. And now my mum lives there. So whenever I go back to WA, I do visit her there. And it's this landscape that is so beautiful Um, but also so rugged and isolated, and it does feel like maybe it hides some magic in its corners. And so I decided to set Corpse's story in this really completely fictional town but based on that part of the world. And then the rest, honestly, was just pure imagination. I think because I'd already decided on such a bizarre protagonist, it kind of freed me to be like, okay, well, I'll just be weird in every aspect of this story, not question my instincts too much um, and just hope like anything that it works. And thankfully it did. Now I want to come back to the story and, and certain elements of your writing process and some of your choices as well, which I think people would be really interested in. But I want to talk about the fact that this book has already gone bonkers and it's been sold in so many different territories and, you know, you're about to go to the UK to promote it and all the rest of it. But let's talk about the lead up to it. How did this get... I understand, first of all, that you it's not the first novel you've written. You've actually written other manuscripts. Tell us what happened to those and then how this one eventually became the one. Yeah, sure. I mean, the short story is that nothing happened with those, um, which I think is quite probably a common story. You know, everyone, every quote, you know, quote, unquote, um, overnight success, there's usually a, a string of failures that come beforehand. And that was certainly the case with me. I'd written three other manuscripts, two of them middle grade, one young adult, none dark, none like this. They were kind of more in that whimsical fantasy kind of genre. Um, And they just didn't sell, frankly. They, um, you know, they didn't sell. And I was feeling pretty defeated and pretty despondent. Um, And it was actually whilst writing the third one that I did the, that I was advised to do the, you're, you're going to know the course name better than me. Was it writing for children oh, and young writing adults? writing children's novels. It's called now. Yeah. Writing yeah, children's writing novels. To, so it was actually un, from the, I'd, so I'd written this third one. The first two, I understood why they didn't sell. Perhaps they were a little bit, you know, familiar. I'd kind of written to trend, written things I'd already seen that had been done better before. Still valuable. Cause I kind of cut my teeth, I suppose, writing those stories. The third one I had a lot more hope for, Uh, I was getting some good feedback from, you know, uh, critique partners and so on. So I went to get a manuscript assessment from a freelance editor who basically said fairly, fairly quickly, you need to go and do a writing course, go to Australian Writers' Centre. And so I, so so whilst I was editing the third manuscript, I was doing the, I was doing writing children's books um, and feeling pretty good about the book, but it still didn't sell. And you can imagine not feeling great about myself at that stage. And then a friend of mine who's another author, Tobias Madden, you might know him, suggested, well, Reese, why don't you just try, like, go easy on yourself. Why don't you try writing short stories for a little while? Because they're less of a, 
you know, less of a task. You can do them and get that satisfaction of having completed a project in a shorter space of time. And so then I went and did the short. I was like, that's actually a good idea. That might make me feel, you know, reignite that fire. So that's when I did the short stories course. I think it's short stories essentials. And I'd never written a short story before. And I was like, oh, this is actually really fun. And so um, there was a, one, an Australian publisher was, uh, they were about to publish a horror anthology uh, for, YA, for YA horror. And so I thought, oh, I'll write a story for that and I'll enter. But I knew how to structure a story. I knew what to, I, you know, I had the tools of the trade. I wrote A Girl Called Corpse in six months. I had such a strong idea of what it was. I sat down, I wrote it. And then I just thought, I'm just going to send it to my dream agent. I'm just going to do it. Why not? You know, I'd read this agent's name in the acknowledgement sections of, you know, books by writers whom I admire so much, you know, Jessica Townsend, B.B. Alston, Sophie Anderson, all these people. I thought, I'm just going to do it. And I sent it and I felt really good about myself for about five minutes. And then I called Tobias again. I was like, what have I done? I sent my manuscript to Gemma Cooper. It was not ready. Um, But thankfully she loved it, took it on. And it's, you know, the rest happened very quickly with her. Um, Yeah. Describe the rest. So the rest, okay. The rest, (laughs) this is where it gets really fun. So the rest, so Gemma was a very editorial agent. We did some work on it together and then she took it to publishers. So we went on submission with the book Um, and having had kind of no interest in books before uh, any of my previous manuscripts to suddenly get the amount of interest that we did on this book was just so overwhelming and so exciting. And so all of a sudden overnight, you know, I was taking meetings with publishers here and in the UK. I was getting emails about various different co-agents in other territories, kind of Italy, Spain, Norway, selling the book there. And it all just happened. It was all just, my head was spinning. My head was absolutely spinning. And then once I'd taken these meetings with the different publishers, Gemma then took the book to auction. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm sure some of the listeners are already familiar with what an auction, a, a, you know, auction for a book looks like. But for those who aren't, it kind of takes place over about 48 hours. And basically it's just a string of very exciting emails coming in from my agent. So every offer that would come in from a publisher would be sent to me. I'd be able to see it verbatim. And then there would be a second round. So it all happens over 48 hours and then it's done. And you've sold your book. And again, you kind of, you're still reeling from how fast it's all happened. Or oh I my was. Goodness. Well, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, justifiably so. So that's that's just absolutely brilliant. I'm so excited for you. So then you, at the end of the auction, you and your agent assess the offers and come to a decision. Is that correct? That's correct. So you, you don't have to necessarily go with the highest bidder. There doesn't have to be a case that we reserve the right to kind of assess the offers in a more kind of holistic way, um, work out which is going to be the best deal, also who I think might be the best fit for the book. Um, and that's where those meetings with publishers that had taken place beforehand were really valuable because I sat down with the publishers, with the people who would be, you know, doing structural edits on the book, people who would be overseeing the creative around illustration and design. And so I got a real sense of not only who shared my vision for the book, but also publishers that would work well together in different territories. And so I think even before, even as the auction was taking place, um, I had, a you know, there were some front runners. And um, so once, once my agent and I sat down and kind of chatted about it, it was pretty unanimous that we'd found the dream team for Corpse. So in terms of at the moment, which territories are is it being published in? 
So Australia and New Zealand and the UK will be simultaneous uh, publication, which is now. Uh, and then Italy, Spain and Norway are the other territories that will be coming out in, but we don't have dates yet. How did you feel when all of this was happening? Did You know, yeah, how did you feel? I still don't think I believe it, Valerie. Like my name is printed on the book and I'm looking at it, I'm thinking there must be some other Reese Carter. I mean, obviously this is the stuff dreams are made of. You're overwhelmed, but it's still such a pinch me moment. Um, and I still I don't think, I've, I still don't think I've completely wrapped my head around it. But specifically those translation uh, deals, I think you don't, you always hope for something like that. You hope for them. You're aware that they happen. Um but you're not necessarily, my head hadn't even gone there yet. I was just thrilled to have even found one publisher in one territory. So the idea that um, it would be translated into other languages and I'd be reaching kids who speak languages that I don't even speak was just, you know, absolutely thrilling and such an added bonus that I never could have imagined. Well, I have no doubt they're not going to be the only territories. It's only going to grow from here. So you mentioned the courses of writing children's novels and short story essentials. What did you get out of the course that was then helpful for you in your writing and getting published? So really good question. And I'm going to start by actually saying I think I was really reluctant to do a course when I was given that advice. And I'm not because I kind of... Not because I thought I was, you know, above it or didn't need it, but I think everyone, when they get to a point where they've already worked on a story for a really long period of time, it's a little bit gut-wrenching to think, oh, maybe I actually don't have a clue what I'm doing. Um, and so I was a little bit reluctant and immediately what I learned and what I took away was I didn't have the practical skills. I, th I thought that imagination was enough to write a story and what I took away from both courses, well, we talk about the first course, what I especially, what I learned from writing children's books was that story has a shape and that I needed to take the time to learn, have a better understanding of the three-act structure, have a better understanding of how to build tension, have a better understanding of how the different tools work, you know, character point of view. Um, and again, you know, especially with three-act structure, I know there is some reluctance with, uh, with kind of writers early on because they think, oh, you know, if we all write in the three-act structure, we're just writing the same book with slight changes. But it's not that at all. Like learning to having a really good understanding of how structure works, why those different market, you know, points are there throughout a story actually frees you and liberates you to then take any idea and shape it into a story that works. And I think that's why A Girl Called Corpse, even though it's such a strange concept, works is because from the course I really learned the three-act structure and kind of hammered that in, that kind of practical understanding then freed me to tell the stories that I really wanted to tell. Um, and then the second, interestingly, telling sh uh, the short story essentials course although I've never written another short story since that one I mentioned, um, it really taught me to tighten my writing. It really, really taught me to um, tighten up plot, kind of be really efficient and effective with my language because when you're writing a short story, you've only got, you know, several thousand words to work with. And so those skills I took back into writing novels and it's just made my writing so much tighter. So you say that you wrote A Girl Called Corpse in six months. You also have um, another career or previously had another career as uh, in the world of health as a nutritionist. Were you writing it while you were having a full-time job? Were you writing it, you know, 
while you were doing other things or did you focus on it full time? Talk us about how much time you dedicated with your bum in the chair. Yeah, so with um, with a girl called Corpse, I was still working full time at that stage, and I would be getting up at four a.m. to write. I found that I needed to um, be up before emails started happening, before my phone might go off. That was when my head was clearest. So I would be up at four a.m. I'd sit down, have about three very st- two or three very strong coffees between four a.m. and seven a.m., and I'd just get three hours of writing done every day before I'd kind of then walk the dog, go to the gym, start my day. Um, so that was, and do you know what though? The thing is now that I, I've now left that career in health behind and I am writing full time, I'm not convinced I do all that much more writing in a day. I still don't think, even though I've got all this time now, I still have a few really good hours first thing in the morning when my head is clear. Um, and then not much happens for the rest of the day until I've now discovered a new kind of hour at about 7 p.m. till 8 p.m. where I can go in and do a little bit of editing and tinkering and that kind of thing. Yeah, maybe you were conditioned in that way because you wrote, you know, while you had a full-time job. So in those hours from four till seven when you were writing this book, um, were you achieving a similar word count each day or did it vary? And were you aiming to achieve a, a specific word count? I think the second part of that question is the really interesting one because I'm probably one of the only writers I know who doesn't set word count goals. Um, and it would vary widely. You know, some some days I might wake up and in that time I might only get between three and 500 words out. Other times it might be 2,000 words. Um, but I didn't see one as a more successful writing day than the other because I think often when you get fewer words out, you're still sol- you'll be solving problems or you'll be fixing dialogue or making something work that didn't work before, which is still just as valuable part of the process. So for me, at least, word count, I think if I was to let myself get distracted by word count, um, I just don't think it would be a particularly interesting metric for me or like I don't mm. think that, you know, I think it could distract me from what's actually important, which is just sitting down every day, putting the work in, seeing it improve. So did you know what was going to happen? At the start. So I did, I'm a plotter. um, And then my books look nothing like what I set out to write by the time they're done. So I sat down, I'm not sure, you've probably uh, read or at least know of The Little Prince, you know, the French book. Yeah, Le Petit Prince. Yeah, Yeah, Le Petit Prince, exactly. (laughs) So I initially set out to, when I initially plotted it, I plot my books in like an Excel spreadsheet, just kind of making sure I hit all of those markers, you know, in the first, second and third acts, your midpoint, everything you need in very brief, just a few sentences. And initially a girl called Corpse was going to be very much like um, the little prince where she was going to head off from the rock that doesn't exist, which is where she haunts, and go to the town of Elston Fright and meet these various, like one after the other meet in, you know, um, it was going to be the butcher, the merchant, the jeweller and the thief, I think. And at each person that she met in this town, she would learn something new about herself, kind of very much like the little prince does, you know. Um, and then very quickly that wasn't going to work. That got thrown out. All of those characters, the merchant still exists and the thief still exists, but they're now called the fisher. Um, but the whole plot changed completely. So, And the same was true. I've just written um, a sequel. I've just written the second book and the same is true. I looked at the kind of synopsis that I, the one page synopsis that I wrote for it. 
And I don't think there's a single plot point that survived. <laughs> but how writing. useful then is it for you to have that structure, even though you don't end up, it doesn't end up like that at all? How essential is that for you to start? Or are you going to give it up now? I, no, I think I'll still keep it because it's nice to at least have an idea of where you're going, even if I think I think I need to have that vague idea, that plot um, to begin writing. But then ultimately you have to be ready to let go of it or I have to be ready to let go of it and follow my characters and follow um, also follow kind of what feels right both as a writer but also as, as a reader. I think when you're writing, or at least I am, I'm always coming back and then trying to view it through the lens of a reader. And if something doesn't work, I know I've got to be ready, not too proud to deviate from what I'd initially planned and instead just kind of honour what the book needs and what the story needs. But first and foremost, it really needs to be um, driven by the characters. Like the decisions they make need to feel true to the character you've created. And I think sometimes having too firm an idea or too firm a plan of how the plot's going to roll out can get in the way of that. So let's talk about the characters because based on what you've just said, you had a very strong sense of corpse from the beginning, from that, you know, when you first thought about it and you had a real sense of what she was searching for and, um, you know, her place in the world and all of that. But there are all these other characters as well who are really unique. And what to what level did you go through characterization before you started either plotting or writing? How well did you know your characters? Because unlike humans, because you know you always you know someone like John, you know someone like you know Davo or whatever. So, but you don't know ghosts, you don't know huntsman spiders, you don't know witches. Do you have to know your characters in a great deal of depth in order for you to be able to start writing? That's a very interesting question. I hadn't actually kind of considered it like that because I think I still write whether it's ghosts or witches. They still write them as as people or they, you know, like, and I think as readers, all my readers, I assume will be human. And so for a story <laughs> to be impactful, you know, like you still have to identify with the characters. And I was actually having this chat the other day with my agent, we were talking about corpse and we both admitted we forget all the time that she is a ghost. We forget all the time because even though she is a ghost, you have to write her as a kid, you know, you have to write her as a kid, your reader's age and as relatable. Um, and so I think that, Hopefully in all the characters, there is some sort of, you know, even the most non-human-like ones, unhuman-like ones, um, <laughs> those that are, you know, very, very strange. I still think there are very relatable human elements to them. Um, the one exception perhaps is Simon the Spider, who I think is just my dog, shrunk down and given extra legs. Oh, that is so interesting that you said that because Simon, I really like Simon. And I think what one of the reasons I like him is because I feel that so for for readers or potential readers, Simon is um Corpse's friend and he is a huntsman spider. And you know, they because they're friends, they hang out and they talk and stuff, but he doesn't actually speak any words. Um, he generally communicates through clicks. This is not giving anything away. Um, and so just what I loved is the fact that even though Simon doesn't really speak words that we understand, he has such a strong voice. And I tried to figure out 
why do I think Simon has such a strong voice? Now, I have my theories, but I would like to ask you that question. Oh, I definitely want to hear your theories afterwards, though, <laughs> because that sounds interesting. So for me, as I, as I kind of mentioned, Simon is, and I only realised this kind of in hindsight, Simon is definitely my dog. Uh, my dog Hagrid is definitely, like he's maybe a spider, but he acts like a very small dog. Um, and I spend a lot of time talking to my dog who cannot talk back to me. And yet I'm still completely convinced that we're having a conversation. You know, I think you, I think anyone with pets, most people with pets, when they're alone and no one's looking, they have a little chat to their pet, right? And you always like to imagine what they might be saying back. And so I was surprised at how easy that was to write because I didn't want to write a talking animal. I thought that would age the book down too much. But she also, Corpse also couldn't have um, a ghost sidekick or a human sidekick because we'd already established she was really lonely. And so a, a huntsman spider that lived in the roof with her made sense. Um, so I was trying to work out, okay, well, how do I, how do I do that? How do I have a character she can communicate with that is not a talking animal? Um, and a spider, huntsman spiders do talk by clicking. They rub the, the hairs on their leg together and make a clicking sound. That's how they communicate. And I was like, okay, well, let's just have it that corpse can understand that clicking sound. And then of course, to communicate that to the reader, because they need to be able to understand what Simon is saying too. You really just, I just really had to pay attention to, corpse's reactions in the to him in the discussion so there had to be enough in how corpse reacted to his clicks to the, for the reader to be able to glean what it was that he was saying and it's so clear because the way that you've written it simon really has a voice and so yeah absolutely it is in what happens after simon does his clicks that you figure out what he he's essentially said and you actually as a reader feel really clever <laughs> and satisfied when you've done that simon communicates via these clicks which is a oral thing one of the things that i noticed about the way you write it is it really encompasses the five senses more so than actually a lot of books, um, particularly sound, which is something often writers overlook um, because it's writing. <laughs> um, was that a conscious decision? It was, yes. So two points on that. So, again, that that the tip of writing with all five senses was another one I um, picked up from, I think it was, when I was doing the course with Pamela Freeman, the writing children's books. Um, and so I am very, that is very conscious. I'm always conscious. If, if something reads flat or feel, I'm like, how do I immerse the reader more? And it's always through engaging senses that I haven't for a little while. And so I'll read back over what I've done. Um, specifically with the sounds, and I know what you mean, kind of animals have different noises. You know, we hear, um, you know, the rain dripping on or water dripping on top of the sh uh, shack, et cetera. That, I think I was probably inspired by um, Cressida Cowell doing that. I'm not sure if um, you've read the Wizard of Once series, but she does that a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Uh, and I think it's really kid-friendly and I think it's really kind of vivid. Um, so, yeah, that was a deliberate a deliberate choice and I've kind of, yeah, tr tried as much as possible to come up with new words for familiar sounds so, and, you know, so that you can have that oral experience as well. Your other life as a nutritionist, did you always want to write children's books? When did you decide you want to write children's books and how did that, where did nutrition kind of fit into the, your path? 
Yeah, so I wanted to write children's books ever since I was a read, like a, let's say ever since I was a reader of children's books, I was going to say, which I still am, but ever since I was a child, um, you know, I at the when I was a middle grade reader, so, you know, ten when I was 10 or 11, I think I really fell in love with reading and then I was about 12 when um, I think I'd done a creative writing task in English class and I had this wonderful teacher, Mr. Webb, and he really liked it. And he kind of showed this faith in me way back then and encouraged me to write my own stories. And he used to actually let me skip class sometimes on the condition that I'd go to the library and just write. Uh, I mean, I'm sure if he's listening, you didn't let me skip class. You let me kind of do self-guided learning at the learning centre. That's what that was. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, that, that show of faith then uh, meant so much to me as a kid and I took it very seriously and I loved those, um, you know, hours at the library writing. And I just never stopped. I never, st- I never stopped. Um, so I, I wanted to do that ever since I was young. But, you know, being a writer is not the most straightforward career path. I will say that it's, you know, absolute riotous fun, but it's not the most straightforward career path. And so I did need another, you know, another, uh, another option. Um, and nutrition and health was a genuine interest of mine as well. So that's what I studied at university. I did a degree in health science. Um, masters in human nutrition and had that career but all the time I was you know all the while I was still writing by night or writing first thing in the morning um yeah and so I've always wanted to do this brilliant so you've now written your second book you've written the sequel is that right is it finished the first draft is finished and it's gone to my publisher and she actually popped by the other day um to let me know that she'd read it and loved it, thankfully, because as you can imagine, that's a nerve-wracking experience. Writing a second book, especially if it's contracted, is a completely different beast to writing that first book. Um, Tell us why. So it's completely different because I think you you put a lot more expectation on yourself. I will say nobody put pressure on me, but as a writer, you are very aware all of a sudden that there are other, like, stakeholders who are already invested in this book and that you're with a first book you're writing it hoping that people will love it hoping that someone will want to publish it but if you if it doesn't happen the only person you really let down is yourself um whereas there is this sense of you know especially when it had been contracted to multiple publishers in different countries who are waiting to read this new manuscript suddenly the right my writing room my office it felt like there were a whole lot of other presences there, not just me. It wasn't just me and my laptop, but I'm thinking of each of my publishers, my editors, what they might be expecting or hoping for from the manuscript, uh, which, of course, you can't predict. You need to just write the story that you want to write. But sometimes it is harder to get out of your head and into writing when you've got that, you feel like you've got that set of expectations. Yeah, wow. So when you wrote the first book, so when you wrote this one, A Girl Called Corpse, did you already know that there was going to be more to the story? And, yeah. <laughs> no, I initially wrote A Girl Called Corpse as a standalone um, and it was through a conversation with my agent whilst we were doing some editing on it together that she actually suggested a sort of alternate ending to the book that left things open And I was so glad that she did because it's a world that I didn't want to leave. The world of Elston Fright, I feel like even as its writer, it's constantly surprising me. And there are, 
I feel like there's a secret around every corner waiting to be discovered. And so I'm really glad that I get to continue writing stories in this world. Um, but it wasn't planned initially. It was through a conversation with my agent. She was like, I think this should happen at the end. I agreed, rewrote it. Um, and then so when we took it to publishers, we did pitch it as a series. Right. So then when you are when you wrote um uh the second one, did you also do the four to seven thing like were you working at that time already and how long did it take you so by that stage i when we so we signed on for three books firstly so that gave me the confidence to know okay i i can i can take the leap i can write uh full time and so i gave up my career in health and i was writing full time by the time i started drafting the second book um as i you know i I'd no longer set an alarm at four o'clock to wake up, but I still did just naturally get up early and found that my best writing was done in the morning. I would try throughout the day, but I was just much less effective. I was just, you know, and then I would do a little bit in the evening. So even though I had all this extra time, writing the second book took me a year. I did miss a couple of deadlines. I did miss the, I had to push, I did that. I did what I really didn't want to do as an author. And um, my first, yeah, I had to push deadlines back and it just, it took a lot longer. Um, yeah. Okay. For- and and the writing for middle grade, authors who write for middle grade are, and, and of course other ages, but especially for middle grade, are often very popular for school visits and school appearances and kids' writing festivals and that sort of thing. Is that the sort of thing that you're interested in or, you know, you'd rather just sit at home and write? <laughs> I mean, look, I think like a lot of writers, I'm a, I'm a complete introvert and so the idea of sitting just home and writing writing stories is very appealing. But, of course, re- actually going out and meeting readers, meeting, you know, young readers, readers of my story is very exciting. So we've already got quite a few school visits lined up that are coming up and I cannot wait. And we're teaching them how to create their own spooky characters, which will be very fun. So I've developed a, a workshop for that. I will say I'm equal parts excited and terrified because kids are so smart and they're the keenest readers. And, you know, there have been so many grown up sets of eyes on this book now, but it will be kids who spot, who, you know, spot the, um, the plot holes and, you know, the little things that I've, the little mistakes I've made. So, and I, um, I'm a little bit terrified to have them point out where I've made mistakes. <laughs> Why have you chosen this as your sweet spot? I mean, I know you said that you had an unpublished one that was sort of YA, but what obviously you like middle grade. Why have you chosen that age group? What what resonates with you so much about it? I think there are a few things. I think it was, what was it that Philip Pullman said? I think it was some, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it was some some themes and subjects are too big to be dealt with in an adult book. They can only be adequately addressed in a kid's book or something like that. And I do think you have the opportunity to tackle really big themes, love, friendship, right, wrong, good, evil, in a way that you can't um, in books for older readers. I think middle grade is the sweet spot where you can really do that. I also think that what I love about middle grade books is that they are always hopeful. They have to be hopeful. Um, even a you know even a, this dark, spooky story, um, A Girl Called Corpse, it is ultimately a hopeful story about friendship and found family oh, yeah. and belonging and bravery. And you need, and I, you know, a, even as an adult, it's 
especially now, I think we all need those hopeful stories, right? Um, and then, of course, there's the fact that you ask any um, grown up, like you ask any adult, what's your favorite book? More often than not, they will mention a book from when they were a young reader themselves. Like I think books for kids this age have such an opportunity to make a real impact. And I know that when I was a reader at 10, you know, eight, nine, 10, especially 10, 11, 12, um, these books were so important to me. Stories Mm -hmm. were so important to me. Um, And to imagine that I could ever have that, like I could create any kind of impact, similar impact for a young reader is, you know, that's very rewarding. And um, I just want to assure listeners that even though Reese has used the word dark a few times the uh, and you might have a sensitive child reader or something, honestly, it is beautiful and hopeful and you don't have to worry about it being too dark. So, you know, go and get it. <laughs> Thank All you. right. So, um, no, because I am one of those readers who's a bit sensitive to those sorts of things. So I'm, I get it that some people... Um, want to are concerned sometimes and I just wanted to assure people that it's there's nothing to worry about all right so I think that oh it's going to go amazing it's already gone amazing so what would your top three tips be to um uh aspiring writers who were in a position where you were not that long ago but now You've gone bonkers. The book's gone bonkers. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the first one's going to sound like an absolute cliche, but genuinely don't give up. Like if it's something you really want and it is something you love, like you can't predict. It it happens at different times for everyone, but I do genuinely believe if you keep at it, you you will have success. Um, So don't give up. Secondly, I think there are two things to do. The first one is learn your craft. Um, no matter where you're at, you know, I think it's worth making sure that you've learned your craft, you've done your study, you know, the kind of, you know, you've got all your tools well and truly sharpened and ready to go. And then once you know that learnable stuff really, really well, that's when you can then kind of lean into the, you know, my last piece of advice was lean into the weirdest parts of your imagination, like lean into the strangest, newest ideas and um, trust them, trust your instincts and trust those, you know, those big ideas. Fantastic. Love it. Congratulations. And thank you so much for your time today, Reese. Thanks, Valerie. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Reese. I cannot wait to see how his career unfolds now with the publication of A Girl Called Corpse. And while we're talking about spooky kind of things, did you know that there are ghost words found in dictionaries? Not the word ghost, but ghost words. These aren't haunted words, but rather words that don't really exist, but end up in a dictionary anyway. So how? There are two ways that this can happen, accidentally and on purpose. So you might think, how can a word end up in a dictionary accidentally? Well, it doesn't happen so much anymore. But back in the 18th and 19th centuries, people would scan through books, like they would just look through books and look for new words to add to dictionaries. Fun job, right? Sometimes they would be copied out incorrectly, like maybe they would mistake an S for an F, for for example, or they would record a misprint as a new word. 
For many years, the word Morse, M for Mary, M-O-R-S-E, appeared in dictionaries with a completely made-up meaning. The original sentence it had come from had been misprinted as, Dust thou so soon Morse thoughts of slaughter. But it should have been, Dust thou so soon nurse thoughts of slaughter. Yeah. Sometimes, also, dictionaries will actually add in fake words to protect their copyright so they can see if any other publisher has plagiarised their material. You can also find ghost words, believe it or not, or ghost entries in newspaper obituaries, bibliographies, and even maps. So there you go, ghost words in dictionaries. Well, I've spooked you out enough this week, and it's not even Halloween yet. Um, We've come to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for hanging around and having me in your ears and letting me bring you some fabulous authors every episode. I'd really appreciate it if you had 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or the uh, podcast player or app of your choice. It'd be really helpful because it certainly helps other people find us and helps us in the rankings. And thank you so much if you've done this. Really appreciate it. Feel free to connect on social media. One of the best places to do that is over on the Podcast Community Facebook group. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer Podcast Community and request to join. It's free to join and I often put stuff in there that is... um, kind of like unofficial prizes, unofficial competitions and giveaways. And there's actually going to be more of those coming up in the future. So do join us in the Facebook group. Love to have you in there. Feel free to connect with me personally as well. I'm at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.